This is the No Switch Fitness Podcast. We want to help guide your journey into developing your best physique. With your host, Luke Miller. Hi guys, welcome back to the No Switch Fitness Podcast, um, a dearly beloved series in which all three of us are going to tackle today. So Alan, if you would like to kick us off for the three topics that we have, we'll kind of go ahead and dive into some of the bullshit that we hear on the brodette side. Yeah, what's up guys? Uh, Super excited for this episode. It's going to be a special broette series. So instead of the typical bro questions, we're putting uh, to rest some of the female bro questions that we hear commonly perpetuated in uh, the gym and the bodybuilding world. Um, and we're super excited to bring along uh, our third coach, Olivia. Of course, she'll be joining us. So um, it's going to be awesome. Uh, again, we'll do three, three topics, three questions, uh, nutrition, training, and PED usage. So let's kick this off with our first question, which Olivia will introduce. So we're kind of talking about in the dieting realm, um, the idea of using low fat diets during prep and the implications of that for females. So what do you think about that, Alan? Like, do you think that that is something that's dangerous? Is that something that we should consider? Is there a point where we shouldn't lower fat? Yeah. I mean, that's a common one. You know, I see all the time it's male and females, really, this could be either one. Um, but keeping it in the female realm for the sake of our broettes out there listening, uh, to this, to this episode, um, low fat diets on prep for females. Um, there will come a point where you're going to have to lower fat. Um, it's, it's, it's going to happen. It's probably going to be in the later end of prep, but we know the fat regulates a lot of hormones which play a very important role, um, throughout our dieting process. Um, so we definitely can't pull them too early, but like I said, it is bodybuilding and we are dealing with extremes here. And in order to get an extremely lean shape, male or female, you know, that fat's going to have to come down eventually. So Luke, if you'd like to kick a little more off here. Yeah, I think it's a conversation. I think it's a conversation that you got to contextualize a bit, right? Natural or non-natural realms. Typically, we're going to be taking care of the hormonal side of things, the uh, exogenous supplementation within the non-natural realm. So then that consideration starts to go a little bit out of the window. Um, I think more on the natural side of things is probably where we are making that consideration a little bit deeper um, and is possibly... Possibly a consideration for warranting setup at the beginning of a contest prep, like what you've done in the all season to be skewed a little bit more towards uh, a fat composition diet and carbohydrates. So like skewing the balance a little bit so that you have more room to play with there across the diet phase. At the end of the day, like you said, you got to get shredded. So it's, it's, you're just going to need to combat the adaptations across the prep in the best way that you can. And that's going to be mitigating fatigue um, and, and being able to have a good starting point where we don't have to get to the extremes too much. And I think that when we look at natural federations, a lot of the times the rate limiter is the start point. Um, and so the start point of a prep kind of defines how successful the prep is going to be. Um, and while that's 
holds true within the PED realms too. I would argue that you can kind of make up some lost time with deployment of compounds in a manner that's probably a little early relative to when you would deploy them. But um, within the natural realm, it even kind of warrants the management of the all season to be that much more, I don't want to say meticulous, but like driven towards the contest prep. And so the contest prep that's going to be done needs to be planned a little bit further and ahead so that you can get all the variables in play to be in your favor. Because there's going to right. be where you just can't keep pushing. Right. So like Luke said, a lot of times, um, especially in the female competitors, um, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to throw any punches here, but they maybe don't do the best job all the time of getting their calories as high as they can in the off season so that they're better set up for prep. Like Luke said, because essentially what happens is you, um, when you raise that set point, that caloric set point, um, and you climb it ever higher into the off season, then when it's time to pull, you have a lot more to pull from. So by that, you know, you're not, you're not staying around. Let's, let's use arbitrary number 2000 calories. Then when you get on prep and you're trying to cut down, um, you know, lose fat, retain muscle, all that stuff. And your start point is only 2000 calories. Again, arbitrary number. You're going to have to dig a hell of a lot deeper than somebody that's set up well into the off season. And that's kind of what Luke was getting at with, with looking at it more, more of a, a long-term standpoint. So not just like, Oh, I'm doing, you know, uh, a 16 week prep from this month to that month. And there's my show. It's like, all right, well, I want to do a 16 month prep, but in addition, you know, I'm going to be bulking or massing or whatever you want to call it for X amount of months. I hope you're not. Proud. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> However many weeks, again, we're talking arbitrary numbers. This is just a point for, for demonstration. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, so you got to think all right, in the off season, I need to climb those calories up. Yeah. Maybe you get a little fluffy, not, not so fluffy that you start to lose. Uh, you start to get fat, fat where it be prep now becomes painful, but you definitely want to raise that caloric ceiling so that you have more to pull from and uh, you're, you're better off in the long term. just really overall when you, when you do start dieting. I think there's two sides of that point too. And Olivia, you can speak from past experience because I've done this in the past before is not allowing yourself to come up where you're able to have productive off season because you're so scared of getting too far off. Right. That's just as bad as probably the opposite. Right. And you can probably provide some context to that as far as the differentiations between an off season in the past that you had where that happened and then an off season where now you're being progressive as possible. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that was really neat about when we started working together was you pulled my fats up right away. I mean, granted I was coming from prep, so my fats were pretty low, but my fats were around like 30 on training days, like 40 on rest days. And I mean, we jumped right up to almost like 90 on rest days, which I was really just mentally scared about. I mean, because everything that we've heard in media and just like the diet culture in the past few years, except when like keto started becoming popular was, you know, fats need to be low, especially in that like typical bodybuilding diet. And I think us discussing like that metabolic flexibility, building that where maybe, you know, rest days do have the higher fats and lower carbs to help manage the overall caloric intake, but building that flexibility um, with 
allowing the body to adjust to the higher fats has been really neat to see that I did not just pile on body fat, you know, right out of the gates. And I'm granted, I'm interested to see where hormones are from the panel we drew this week, but I think overall just health being in a better spot with fats being in a higher, in a higher spot to start with. And knowing that when we get to that prep scenario, we'll be pulling from a higher level to begin with. So it won't be at hopefully zero fats by the end of prep, which will support hormones through prep as well. Yeah. I think it's just like an overall consideration for output within the all season phase too. Right. And we've gotten you to feeling good pretty fast. And that's kind of where we see the restoration of the lab work come back as well. And um, the last lab work was probably some of the best you'd pulled in a long time. I mean, I foresee that trend continuing. So it's a very important consideration as far as like within management of female athletes. But um, I think that covers everything within that realm. Alan, if you want to kind of kick off the next question, Olivia, do you have anything to add? I had one question. So I think it might be good to differentiate like why there is a difference between uh, natural and supported athletes in terms of fat intake. Yeah. So I think it just comes down to what we have at our disposal, right? So when we see that that uh, HPA shutdown with females in a supported realm, we can just go to HRT practices in order to support that and find the ratios in which they're operating efficiently at, right? What is the estradiol value that you feel the best at? What is um, that estradiol to progesterone ratio that you feel the best at where we're avoiding any uh, complications from like even like an estrogen dominance thing or anything along those lines? Um, where is the overall test value within that so that we're keeping you in that high normal range for supporting recovery um, and a, lo- a couple other considerations within that. But we have that opportunity to support that via HRT practices that are um, a little bit more modern and progressive in nature, which we'll touch a little bit within question three today. But um, we don't have that opportunity within natural female athletes. So it's more of uh, it, it requires a lot better management and setup on the front end um, because you're going to see the adaptation. We have plenty of case studies that show the hormonal issues that are going to coincide with body fat levels that are equivalent to contest prep. And then on the back end, recovery for natural females is going to take longer too. Um, And so for most, I mean, you're going to have resilient athletes who are the one-offs, right? So they'll bounce back pretty quick. But um, I believe there's even one case study, I believe it took a girl eight months yeah so a year and a half before she normalized again so um just a consideration within that and to kind of maybe even plan how often you compete around that too if you're in the natural federations because you don't have as much support and so spreading the shows out typically helps with better packages over the long term so um i think that'd be the main considerations with natural to non-natural for sure um that kind of answer everything that you yeah and i think that's just a testament to the fact that like we want hormones in a normal range and that includes estrogen and progesterone and not just androgens which i think is like a typical misconception so if we can support overall hormone health ideally which is going to you know take that fat and take into consideration i think that that's important to note yeah and like you said, Maddie's Maddie's have less reservoirs, you know, to to pull out to play with. So, yep. I think we're good on that. Uh, moving on to the next question here: Should a should a female train like a male? 
should a broette train like a bro, right? Um, it's an interesting question. Um, I don't know, Olivia, have you ever done, I know you're familiar with the traditional bro split where you hit one body part every, uh, I'm sorry, one body part a day and you do like uh, six or seven days of training. Have you ever done anything like that? Just out of curiosity? Oh yeah. I probably run like every split that there is, um, which, you know, I think for a certain amount of time, you can make progress on a different split. I mean, I've done also like an upper lower split and it's like, I think for like, just for like the change in stimulus, um, it can be beneficial for a certain amount of time, but also just noting like, what are the body parts that we need to bring up? And so are you spending enough time, enough volume on those body parts? And I think for, you know, a lot of girls, depending on what, um, what category you're competing in, you know, it may not be beneficial to have an entire chest day, you know, for most of us, even, even in physique and maybe women's bodybuilding, like having an entire chest day isn't going to benefit you, or you may need to be hitting certain parts like back like twice a week. So that's when I think bringing in more of that push pull legs could be more beneficial than a typical bro split, but that could also be the case for males as well. I don't know a lot of guys who benefit from just that body part a day type split. Yeah. Genetic outliers and people at the top end of the sport may be the only case for that. Right. I think the majority of us need a frequency that's a little bit higher than, than that. And um, I think it's, I think it's interesting because, programming for a female and a male from like a how it's executed standpoint is not differentiated too far um there's a couple considerations from structural based things but um that you can't change but outside of that like it's really just coming down to split setups right like how frequently are you training certain body parts what are you prioritizing um where are the landmarks for these and you'll see like to your point with like the chest work like with very minimal to little chest work, it opens recovery capacity for females on other body parts, right? That we're not, you can think of it as like spending, spending money on like a budget, right? Like if you have a hundred dollars and you have to spend $10 per body part, right? Well, you have $10 extra that you're not really spending on like chest, chest volume. So you're able to kind of appropriate it elsewhere. So um, it's definitely a consideration. And then we have to take into account like, how well females recover from frequency relative to males and that kind of situation. So it does start to kind of skew the setups, which I think is the biggest difference, but from like a effort execution standpoint, there's probably not too much of a differentiation. I, I see commonly, and this is, we're starting to shift away from this, I think, but that females will often want that like higher volume and try to use that to drive growth. Um, and sometimes shift away from maybe even the ability because of lack of resources with volume being so high to overload. Um, and I think that in most classes, it's going to be important to keep that volume at a point where we can overload as opposed to just building volume up over time. And maybe there's certain cases like, especially with bikini, where some girls are just having to maintain their muscle mass, where we keep it at a higher volume and not necessarily shoot for so much overload week to week. But in most cases, um, I think it's important to educate on that, keeping volume at that point where we can consistently overload. 
it is it is interesting that you bring up volume because for the most part females do have a better recovery capacity than males in that they can usually handle a little bit more volume um perhaps a little more intensity but you know it's like uh, it is fun to see when it when it kind of clicks you know for a female and, and she really learns how to take a set like you know take it to the house and just just absolutely bury it um and and a lot of times a lot of times you know you take a take a male and a female and have them do one set and just absolutely bury it the the guy's going to be lying on the floor crying for three minutes and the female's going to be perfectly fine after like you know a minute so so that's kind of cool to watch but but once they kind of learn that and then they apply it in, in an overload you know progression pattern um i think they definitely do reap a lot better rewards um from from doing stuff like that you made the male to female person a lot more pp than i was going to make it but that's fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah well we try to keep it clean some of the time <laughs> not all the time uh, i think that's i think that's the main consideration within training and it's it's interesting because like to alan's point like it's uh oftentimes with females they're the ones i have to kind of put the reins on a little bit faster than males just because they will be a little bit more willing to take it there um if it's like truly a passionate goal of theirs so um it creates an interesting dynamic from program management standpoint but um i think it's a really important aspect to um, and i i have one client who's a great example and fucking shout out to kim kim chavez she's a wpd pro that fucking girl will take that shit to the house and it is unbelievable how far she'll take some of her leg training and it's like i have to rein in her total volume across the week with that like so much because it starts to carry over to other training sessions and it's like i there's not many of my males that i had to do that with so it starts to make me wonder like you know why are they not sending me these training videos sometimes it's like oh yeah that might be the reason why right um but uh, I think it's I think it's a cool conversation. I think maybe the only consideration would be like I know commonly brought up is like the management of week three to week four menstrual cycle and like possible detractions and volume within that. Um, while you will see like the the every once in a while case study of the female that really struggles during that week heavily to the point that we do need to pull volume a bit. Um, we could possibly start to create the conversation of how do we manage the menstrual cycle better. Um, and then start to do that with um, some help outside in like a supplementary manner. Um, but I think it's not very warranted very often for, for most. Um, you will get the case study once in a while where it is warranted. So I wouldn't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, but I do think that then the conversation more becomes, okay, why are we having to do this? Is there something we can do about this? And if so, go down that route and, and managing that for them. I think some of that too is managing expectations around it. So from a psychological standpoint, like a lot of, a lot of girls are in tune with their body in the sense that they know they notice when they start, you know, retaining water. And I get that comment a lot on their notes, like, you know, like, Oh, I'm, I think I'm about to start my period and like, I'm feeling really fatigued and it's like, okay, noting that and that that's okay and that that maybe isn't expected for everyone so we don't put that expectation on them to begin with because then i think we can start to um like create that fear but to note like okay 
just note that fatigue, you know, fatigue is a factor this week and take that into consideration when you're going into your training sessions. So sometimes progress within that state would be maintaining weights as opposed to trying to advance weights in that week. But that's such a person to person case that I think that it's important that we don't put that expectation out there to begin with, but instead manage it when, when it comes up in a check-in. Agree. Right. So, so, so sort of like, don't expect that and put that on yourself, but if it happens, it happens. Like there's nothing you can really do about it. Right. Exactly. Yep. 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 Um, I think that's it for the training side. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on to our final question, uh, Luke's going to kick this one off and he's ready. Yeah. So I, you guys have heard me talk about this before elsewhere, but we'll talk about it here. Um, so AI considerations and usage for female competitors. So we should probably broaden this to, um, estrogen modulation, right? So within the realms of AIs and CIRMs, um, and what are the considerations for use or non-use? Okay. A lot of this comes back to the management of an athlete on a case-by-case basis. So as a general consensus, um, across the contest prep, we typically do see and know that um, we will get shut down to some extent. Okay. Um, now, the amount that happens on a case by case basis is very differentiated. Um, and so, where the conversation starts to lead is lab work will be the, the information that's needed in order to warrant deployment or non deployment. Um, and I'm going to, and this is where my main problem is most of the time is because it's typically just a scripted AI or CERM deployment um, within the confines of whatever script this individual runs. It's deployed within the same four week period for every female athlete that they have um, without any concern or look at lab work. And that's kind of where this conversation starts to go, because if you know that a female operates her best at an estradiol value of 40 and you pull lab work and it's 15. Why would we implement the AI or the CERM to further exacerbate an issue that's gone past the point of where they feel the best at, right? Um, and, and we have to take into consideration progesterone here as well and finding that um, estradiol progesterone ratio. Um, but in that case, we're typically looking at more the HRT route, right? We're looking at supplementing estradiol with exogenous bioidentical forms of estradiol um, and, and bringing that lab work back to what would be considered baseline normal for um, that female so that they are able to operate. Um, and within the considerations of estradiol being a little bit higher, there is benefit to having that um, at our, what we would consider our optimal range for that person. Um, within the confines of progressing the contest prep from a body composition standpoint. So it's, it's my, my main problem is deployment without knowledge. Okay. Now that doesn't mean that we can't influence the look with an AI or CERN deployment towards the end of a contest prep. If we know that this female trends higher on the lab work scale, right. And if, if that's the case, then maybe a moderate deployment towards the end, is warranted so that you find the look that is associated with the estradiol uh, value on paper. That does take a lot of testing to do. But that being said, like I think just having an understanding of where you're at 
during different parts of the process is the important part that would say, hey, like this may be something we use or no, this is not going to be something we use within the confines of this, right? Especially if we're seeing like within the confines of usage, um, we're typically not using compounds that are going to aromatize with females. And so we're not typically seeing the elevation of that within the aromatizing compounds. So for some people, it's like just including an HRT dose of test will kind of bring them back to normal just from a simple aromatization, depending on how far they are off of their normal. Now, I say that in the sense of we should probably be using this in an HRT-based manner, right? So we see shutdown across the board and we're supporting a normal hormone environment with the deployment of whatever compounds we need within the HRT setup to get them back to normal. So with that being said, I think that the case for AIs and CIRMs within females is very limited because for most, you're going to see shut down to a point where it won't be needed or warranted or logically deployed. Um, but, you know, there are cases in which you will see females trend high and bringing them down will help to look a little bit um, and then kind of go from there. Yeah, another good point to add to that, I think, would be, um, you know, but, well, it's, it's, it's a lot like what you said, skewing their markers, right? But the, so the, introducing AIs or SERMs may lower their estradiol in that it throws off their test at, uh, estrogen ratio so much that they start seeing uh, masculinizing effects and virilization occur. Um, so that's another another good point um, when you're talking about managing those values between the two. Yeah, I think I think one of the biggest things is like if you don't have to use it, don't. For most, just get shredded, and that's probably where the best outcome lies is is not having to negatively influence that panel. Um, but from a preparation standpoint, it's good to be planning out finances to be able to make that lab work testing because lab work isn't the cheapest a lot of times right and so being able to be aware of like hey we're probably going to test this at x weeks out and x weeks out and x weeks out or have this ready to be able to test once we start seeing the negative ramifications we would associate with that shutdown so that we know where we're at get a result and able to do what we need to do um, it is important. And if you've prepped before and you know that you're an individual that sees this shutdown and you've gotten yourself to a point in the all season where you don't need the HRT anymore, then by all means have the HRT ready when you go into the contest prep, because there's probably going to be a point that you're going to need to deploy that. And it helps with just managing the timeline better to be able to pull labs, see that you've had that shutdown and then be able to deploy it to bring you back to normal. Plus, it gives us more time to start to manage the variables of the HRT to find that baseline hormonal environment that's going to be the best for that individual. So um, a lot of considerations with that. I know, Alan, you wanted to make a point. If the AI or CIRM is deployed, you know, what do we do off the back end? Um, I typically present the case of management through nutrition and food and pull, pull it out completely because from a health standpoint, we want to be using that post-show period to get someone back to hormonal homeostasis as fast as possible. Um, and so that's not gonna happen with the presence of an AI continuing to be there. Um, there may be a psychological consideration, which I know you're gonna to touch on. Right, so, so the whole, uh, I guess the caveat to that would be 
to taper or not to taper, right? When, when you're talking about, all right, I am actually going to introduce AI or certain usage within a contest prep. Um, Luke presented a very valid, um, very logical argument for um, not tapering and, you know, getting the astrodial value back to uh, normal or back to up as up as high as it can um, go on its own. However, on the, um, the other side of the coin, and I just wanted to introduce this to sort of play devil's advocate a little bit, uh, psychological considerations to not tapering um, AIs would be, yes, you restore your hormone values back to, back to baseline faster, but on the back end, you may introduce more water retention and stuff. Well, actually, that would be on the front end, not on the back end. So up front, you may, enter, you may experience more water retention um and stuff like that which can really fuck with your head if you you know if you uh, are prone to perhaps holding more water and stuff like that um coming out of a show it, it's uh, it's altering your physique to a greater degree um i would say so there's a bit of a psychological variance there between between competitors and you have to kind of pick and choose your battles i suppose with that one i don't know olivia do you have anything uh to add to this I mean, I kind of feel like for me, the post-show period is really emotional. Like it's hard. There's a lot of adjustments. I mean, um, and I kind of feel like it would potentially be better to, as a coach, discuss that prior so that they have an expectation of what that period could look like. Even if they're feeling really good going into it, just let them know like, Hey, it's, you know, what does post-show blues mean? What, what does that period look like? And what are some of the challenges you could encounter? And if you can kind of manage that on the front end, then instead of using, um, instead of just tapering in order to manage the psychological side of things, really start to work on like those coping skills to begin with. um, So that they're also not thinking that, we are using these drugs for the psychological benefit. Or like if I, maybe, maybe if I stay on my clin a little bit longer, I know we're talking about AIs, but then I can manage like the fat game post-show. Like we start to look at the drugs as like how to like ease ourselves into it instead of dealing with the psychological strategies to build like mental resilience post-show. So I think it depends on like why we're doing it. And if it is from a psychological standpoint, then potentially managing it through like coping skills, as opposed to trying to like ease the blow with drugs, which are negatively impacting the hormone profile. I think the trade-off could be potentially towards not tapering. Yeah. And I think that that's the trade-off you got to find, right. Is having that conversation with, um, and for most, that's going to be let's put health first, right? And and create the strategies that Olivia is kind of pointing out in order to be able to make that person successful over the long term, right? Because you don't want them feeling like they're on a crutch, right? We want this person to be able to do contest preps in the future and be able to manage this in the future, right? And and going into these off seasons with understanding that you're not going to look the same as you did in contest prep. That's part of it. But your ability to do this over the long term is very highly dependent upon you reaching this homeostasis again and being able to move forward with this. And that's not a short road for most females post show. So it's definitely something you need to start 
combating as soon as possible um, because it's 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 I would make the argument that for most it's more detrimental to leave it in than it would be to teach someone the psychological skills in order to be able to manage the response off of pulling it. Then I'm going to go back and make the other argument that you should probably have a prep that doesn't need it, you know, so that you kind of avoid this whole situation in the first place. But, you know, th there will be cases in which it's warranted for deployment. So it's good to have those tools and skills like in the back pocket for understanding. Right. So um, I think I think Olivia makes a good point. And honestly, like from you, your guys perspective, like I think the willingness to have that conversation with clients is, is missing as well. Absolutely. You know, on the, that's one of the things that people don't realize. I mean, people realize it about bodybuilding, but for some reason that no one ever talks about it. Um, it's a very psychological sport. You know, it's very, uh, it's very egocentrical, whether you want to admit it or not. Um, it doesn't have to be necessarily selfish in that regard, but it is based off the way you look and the way you perceive yourself. Right. So there's a huge psychological component. And uh, a lot of times what I found is just, is like you guys said, you know, the ability for uh, of a coach to have a conversation like that with the client just makes a world of difference on on both ends for the client and the coach. In that, as a coach, I get more out of the client, better results long term, and then for the client, it's like the the uh, um, comfort of knowing that they're not the only one that's going through this, right? Because I've I've been there, you know terrible rebounds on preps and stuff like that. Um, and it feels like it's, all, you know, if it, one, it feels like it's all your fault Two, it feels like you're the only one going through it. And it's like, well, nine times out of 10, 10 times out of 10, people have been there and done that, you know, especially your coach, he's probably already been there and done that. So opening up for that dialogue is extremely important, which is why it's, it's very good for clients to just, you know, I, I, I tell my clients like, just, you know, whatever's going on, man, just talk to me about it. It's not, I'm not going to get mad. I'm not going to yell at you. I'm not going to be like, Oh, you're, you need to stop eating cake. You know, it's like, just tell me that it happens so we can deal with it progressively and end up better um, long-term. Right. Cause that, that's what, that's what it's about. Olivia, you have anything to add to that? Yeah. I think it's just having a conversation from the beginning. You know, I think that goes along with when you're, educating someone on what the implications of prep are also educating them on the psychological effects they may experience both through the prep and then after the show so that they're aware of it and informed going into it and they understand the risks because i think sometimes you know now we're talking about really managing you know or educating around the risks health wise which i think is huge and that's something that we can continue to promote in the culture, but also psychologically, just, just making sure that people are aware of that, you know, like the psychological implications of the certain drugs that they're taking, but also like from a food relationship standpoint, and then also like from their relationship with their friends and family, like all of those things need to be taken into account in terms of what you're sacrificing and what you're going to need to be working on through prep and in that post-show period. So as coaches, just making sure that we hold each other accountable for educating and informing so people know what they're getting into from the beginning. And just to kind of cap that off, like this whole conversation comes from the desire to make a comprehensive athlete, like the athlete that's able to have no off switch in the pursuit of their results because they can manage themselves both 
physically, psychologically, the relationally with the people around them, because you start seeing these variables go off. I don't care how resistant to fatigue or how much of a hard head you are or how, you know, knows the grindstones you are, you're going to see some of those start to waver. And so the more comprehensive we can make an athlete and being able to manage the variables that are at play, um, which is going to include personal life, psychological side, physical side, schedules, things like that, stress management, um, the better athletes we're going to end up spitting out on the back end. So. Well said. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to Olivia Nays for coming for introducing this question. Quick little plug there. <laughs> so, it's, it's Luke, you want to take us home? Yeah. So I think uh, this is the pawn ourselves off time. So shameless plug. Um, we have a seminar coming up on October twenty fourth in San Antonio. Um, it'll be a co branded. Uh, seminar with No Switch Fitness and J3U. Um, main presenters are going to be myself, John, and Nick Gloff, um, with Olivia and Alan there helping as well. Um, and then we'll also be looking to book a couple for the beginning of next year and some big announcements for March to April. So make sure you guys stay tuned. Um, we have a lot of videos coming out on the YouTube page, um, a lot of cool content coming from Alan and Olivia here soon as well. Uh, so make sure you guys like, subscribe, comment with your questions in any of the YouTube videos. It's just No Switch Fitness on the YouTube page. Um, and make sure you guys follow us on Instagram. Choose any DMs for questions you want us to cover within the podcast. Um, until next time, no off switch in the pursuit of results.